Chapter Thirteen, Part Three, of the Worst Journey in the World, Volume Two, by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen, Suspense, Part Three. Two days afterwards, the dogs sang at breakfast time. They often did this when a party was approaching even when it was still far away, and they had done so when Crean came in on his walk from Corner Camp. We were cheered by the noise, but no party arrived, and the singing of the dogs was explained later by some seal appearing on the new ice in Arrival Bay. Atkinson decided to go out onto the barrier man-hauling with Keon on the 26th. It was obvious that I could not go with them. He told me afterwards that when I came in with the dog-teams he was sure I could not go out again. March 25th. The wind came away yesterday evening, first south-west and then south-east, but not bad, though very thick. It was a surprise to find we could see the western mountains this morning, and I believe it has been a good day on the barrier, though it is still blowing with low drift this evening. We are now on the days when I expect the polar party in. Pray God I may be right. Atkinson and I look at one another, and he looks, I feel, quite haggard with anxiety. He says he does not think they have scurvy. We both, I think, feel quite comfortable in comparison about Campbell. He only wants to exercise care, and his great care was almost a byword on the ship. They are fresh and have plenty of seal. He discussed with Pennell both the possibility of shipwreck, and that of the ship being unable to get to him, and for this reason landed an extra month's ration as a depot. Also he contemplated the idea of living on seal. He knows of the Butterpoint depot, and knows that a party has been sledging in that neighbourhood, though he does not know of the depots they left at Cape Roberts and Cape Bernacci. They are right out on the points, and Taylor says he could not miss them on his way down the coast. This day Atkinson thought he saw Campbell's party coming in, and the next day Keon and Dimitri came in great excitement, and said they could see them, and we were out on the point and on the sea ice in the drift for quite a long time. Last night we had turned in about two hours when five or six knocks were hit on the little window over our heads. Atkinson shouted, Hello! and cried, Cherry, they're in! Keon said, Who's cook? Someone lit a candle and left it in the far corner of the hut to give them light, and we all rushed out. But there was no one there. It was the nearest approach to ghost work that I have ever heard, and it must have been a dog which sleeps in that window. He must have shaken himself, hitting the window with his tail. Atkinson thought he heard footsteps. On Wednesday, March 27, Atkinson started out onto the barrier with one companion, Keon. During the whole of this trip the temperatures were low, and both men obtained but little sleep, finding, of course, that a tent occupied by two men only is a very cold place. The first two days they made nine miles each day. On March 29th they pushed on in thick weather for eleven miles, when the weather cleared enough to show them that they had got into the White Island pressure. On March 30th they reached a point south of Corner Camp, when, taking into consideration the weather and temperatures, and the time of year, and the hopelessness of finding the party except at any definite point, like a depot, I decided to return from here. We depoted the major portion of a week's provisions to enable them to communicate with Hut Point, in case they should reach this point. At this date, in my own mind, I was morally certain that the party had perished, and, in fact, on March 29th, Captain Scott, eleven miles south of Wonton Depot, made the last entry in his diary. They arrived back on April 1st. Yesterday evening at 6.30pm, 
Atkinson and Cairn arrived. It was pretty thick here and blowing too, but they had had a fair day on the barrier. They had been out to corner camp and eight miles farther. Their bags were bad, their clothes very bad, after six days. They must have had minus forties constantly. It is a moral certainty that to go farther south would serve no purpose, and for two men would be a useless risk. They did quite right to come back. They are much in want of sleep, poor devils, and I do hope Atkinson will allow himself to rest. He looks as though he might knock up. Keon did well, and is very fit. They came in over fifteen miles yesterday, and have brought in the sledge of the second return party, the one they took out being very heavy pulling. They had no day on which they could not travel. Here it has been blowing and drifting half the time he has been absent. And a few days later, we have got to face it now, the pole party will not in all probability ever get back, and there is no more that we can do. The next step must be to get to Cape Evans as soon as it is possible. There are fresh men there, at any rate, fresh compared to us. Atkinson was the senior officer left, and unless Campbell and his party came in, the command of the main party devolved upon him. It was not a position which any one could envy, even if he had been fresh and fit. Amidst all his anxieties and responsibilities, he looked after me with the greatest patience and care. I was so weak that sometimes I could only keep on my legs with difficulty. The glands of my throat were swollen so that I could hardly speak or swallow. My heart was strained and I had considerable pain. At such time I was only a nuisance, but nothing could have exceeded his kindness and his skill with the few drugs which we possessed. Again and again in these days someone would see one or other of the missing parties coming in. It always proved to be a mirage, a seal, or pressure, or I do not know what, but never could we quite persuade ourselves that these excitements might not have something in them, and every time hope sprang up anew. Meanwhile, the matter of serious importance was the state of the ice in the bays between us and Cape Evans. We must get help. All the ice in the middle of the Sound was swept out by the winds of March 30th to April 2nd, and on the following day Atkinson climbed arrival heights to see how the remaining ice looked. The view over the Sound from here is shown in the frontispiece to this book. The ice in the two bays to Cape Evans is quite new, formed this morning, I suppose, with the rest that is in the Sound. There are open leads between Glacier Tongue and Cape Evans, inside the line joining the ends of the two. There is a big berg in between Glacier Tongue and the islands, and also a flat one off Cape Evans. We had some good freezing days after this, and on April 5th we tried the ice this afternoon. It is naturally slushy and salt, but some hundred yards from the old ice it is six inches thick. Probably it averages about this thickness all over the sound. Then we had a hard blizzard, on the fourth day of which it was possible to get up the heights again and see for some distance. As far as could be judged, the ice in the two bays had remained firm. These bays are those formed on either side of the Glacier Tongue by the Hut Point Peninsula on the south, and by Cape Evans and the islands on the north. On April 10th, Atkinson, Keon and Dimitri started for Cape Evans, meaning to travel along the peninsula to the Hutton Cliffs, and thence to cross the sea ice in these bays, if it proved to be practicable. The amount of daylight was now very restricted, and the sun would disappear for the winter a week hence. Arrived at the Hutton Cliffs, where it was blowing as usual, they lost no time in lowering themselves and their sledge onto the sea ice, and were then pleasantly surprised to find how slippery it was. We set sail before a strong following breeze, and, all sitting on the sledge, had reached the glacier tongue in twenty minutes. We clambered over the tongue, and, our luck and the breeze still holding, we reached Cape Evans, completing the last seven miles, all sitting on the sledge, in an hour. 
There I called together all the members and explained the situation, telling them what had been done and what I then proposed to do, also asking them for their advice in this trying time. The opinion was almost unanimous that all that was possible had been already done, owing to the lateness of the year and the likelihood of our being unable to make our way up the coast to Campbell, one or two members suggested that another journey might be made to Corner Camp. Knowing the conditions which had lately prevailed on the barrier, I took it upon myself to decide the uselessness of this. All was well at Cape Evans. Winds and temperatures had both been high, the latter being in marked contrast to the low temperatures we had experienced at Hut Point, which averaged as much as fifteen degrees lower than those that were recorded in the previous year. The seven mules were well, but three of the new dogs had died. We were always being troubled by that mysterious disease. Before she left for New Zealand, the following members of our company joined the ship. Simpson, who had to return to his work in India. Griffith Taylor, who had been lent to us by the Australian government for only one year. Ponting, whose photographic work was done. Day, whose work with the motors was done. Mears, who was recalled by family affairs. Ford, whose hand had never recovered the effect of frostbite during the spring. Clissold, who fell off a berg and concussed himself and Anton, whose work with the ponies was done. Lieutenant Evans was invalided home. Archer had been landed to take Clissold's place as cook. Another seaman, Williamson, was landed to take Ford's place, and of our sledging companions he was the only fresh man. Wright was probably the most fit after him, and otherwise we had no one who, under ordinary circumstances, would have been considered fit to go out sledging again this season, especially at a time when the sun was just leaving us for the winter we were sledged out. The next few days were occupied in making preparations for a further sledge journey, and on April 13th a party started to return to Hut Point by the Hutton Cliffs. Atkinson, Wright, Keown and Williamson were to try and sledge up the western coast to help Campbell. Gran and Dimitri were to stay with me at Hut Point. The surface of the sea ice was now extremely slushy and bad for pulling. The ice had begun to extrude its salt. A blizzard started in their faces, and they ran for shelter to the lee of the little Razorback Island. The weather clearing, they pushed on to the Glacier Tongue, and camped there for the night somewhat frost-bitten. Some difficulty was experienced the next morning in climbing the ice-cliff on to the peninsula, but Atkinson, using his knife as a purchase, and the sledge held at arm's length by four men as a ladder, succeeded eventually in getting a foothold. Meanwhile I was left alone at Hut Point, where blizzards raged periodically with the usual creakings and groanings of the old hut. Foolishly, I accompanied my companions when they started for Cape Evans, as far as the bottom of Ski Slope. When I left them, I found I could not keep my feet on the slippery snow and ice patches, and I had several nasty falls, in one of which I gave my shoulder a twist. It was this shaking, combined with the rather desperate conditions, which caused a more acute state of illness and sickness than I had experienced for some time. Some of those days I remained alone at Hut Point. I was too weak to do more than crawl on my hands and knees about the hut. I had to get blubber from the door to feed the fire, and chop up seal meat to eat, to cook, and attend the dogs, some of whom were loose, while most of them were tied in the veranda, or between the hut door and Vince's cross. The hut was bitterly cold, with only one man in it. Had there not been some morphia among the stores brought down from Cape Evans, I do not know what I should have done. The dogs realised that they could take liberties, which they would not have dared to do in different circumstances. They whined and growled and squabbled amongst themselves all the time, day and night. 
Seven or eight times one day I crawled across the floor to try and lay my hands upon one dog who was the ringleader. I was sure it was Dick, but never detected him in the act, and though I thrashed him with difficulty as a speculation, the result was not encouraging. I would willingly have killed the lot of them just then, I am ashamed to say. I lay in my sleeping-bag, with the floor of the hut falling from me, or its walls disappearing in the distance and coming back, and roused myself at intervals to feed blubber to the stove. I felt as though I had been delivered out of hell when the relief party arrived on the night of April 14th. I had been alone for four days, and I think a few more days would have sent me off my head. Not the least welcome of the things they had bought me were my letters, copies of the Weekly Times, a pair of felt shoes, and a comb. Atkinson's plan was to start on April 7th over the old sea ice which lay to the south and south-west of us. He was to take with him Wright, Cairn, and Williamson, and they wanted to reach Butter Point, and thence to sledge up the western coast. If the sea ice was in, and Campbell was sledging down upon it, they hoped to meet him, and might be of the greatest assistance to him. Even if they did not meet him, they could mark more obviously certain depots, of which he had no knowledge, left by our own geological parties on the route he must follow. As I have already mentioned, these were on Cape Roberts, off Granite Harbour, and on Cape Bernacci, north of New Harbour. There was also a depot at Butter Point, but Campbell already knew of this. They could also leave instructions to this effect at points where he would be likely to see them. There was no question that there was grave risk in this journey. Not only was the winter approaching and daylight limited, but the sea ice over which they must march was most dangerous. Sea ice is always forming and being blown out to sea, or just floating away on the tide at this time of year. The amount of old ice which had remained during the summer was certain to be limited. The new ice was thin, and might take them out with it at any time. However, what could be done had to be done. Before they left, certain signals, by means of rockets and lights were arranged, to be sent up by us at Hut Point, if Campbell arrived. Signals had also been arranged between Hut Point and Cape Evans in view of certain events. We did not have, but I think we ought to have had, some form of portable heliograph for communications between Hut Point and Cape Evans when the sun was up, and some kind of lamp signal apparatus to use during the winter. They started at 10.30am on Wednesday, April 17th. The sun was now only just peeping over the northern horizon at midday, and would disappear entirely in six more days, though of course there was a long twilight as yet. For fresh men on old sea ice it would not have been an easy venture. For worn-out men on a coast where the ice was probably freezing and blowing out at odd times it was very brave. They had hard pulling their first two days, and the minimum temperature for the corresponding nights was minus 43 degrees and minus 45 degrees. Consequently, they soon began to be iced up. On the other hand, they found old sea ice, and made good some twenty-five miles, camping on the evening of the 18th, about four miles from the Eskers. Next morning they had to venture upon newly frozen ice, and a blizzard wind was blowing. They crossed the four miles from their night camp to the Eskers, glad enough to reach land the other side without the ice going to sea with them. They then turned towards the Butter Point depot, but were compelled to camp owing to the blizzard, which came on with a full force. The rise in temperature to zero caused a general thaw of sleeping-bags and clothing, which dried but little when the sun had no power. On the following morning they reached the Butter Point depot, which they found with difficulty, for there was no flag standing. Even as they struck their camp they saw the ice to the north of them breaking up and going out to sea. There was nothing to do but to turn back. 
for neither could they go north to Campbell, nor could Campbell come south to them. Wright now told Atkinson how much he had been opposed to this journey all along. He had come on this trip fully believing that there was every possibility of the party being lost, but had never demurred and never offered a contrary opinion, and one cannot be thankful enough to such men. They made up the Butter Point depot, marked it as well as they could in case Campbell should arrive there, and left two weeks' provisions for him. They could do no more. They got back to the Eskers that same day, and anxiously awaited the twilight of the morning to reveal the state of the new sea-ice which they had crossed on their outward journey. To their joy some of it remained, and they started to do the four miles between them and the old sea-ice. For two miles they ran with the sail set, then they had a hard pull, and some emperor penguins whom they could see led them to suppose that there was open water ahead. But they got through all right, and did ten miles for the day. On Monday 22nd, blizzard in morning so started late and made for end of pinnacled ice we found our little bay of sea ice all gone out luckily there was a sort of ice foot around the pinnacled ice and we completed seven miles and got through tuesday april twenty third atkinson and his party got in about seven p m after a long pull all day in very bad weather they are just in the state of a party which has been out on a very cold spring journey clothes and sleeping bags very wet sweaters, pyjama coats, and so forth, full of snow. Atkinson looks quite done up, his cheeks are fallen in, and his throat shows thin. Wright is also a good deal done up, and the whole party has evidently had little sleep. They have had a difficult and dangerous trip, and it is a good thing they are in, and they are fortunate to have had no mishaps, for the sea ice is constantly going out over there, and when they were on it they never knew that they might not find themselves cut off from the shore. Big leads were constantly opening, even in ice over a foot thick and with little wind, but even if the ice had been in I do not believe that they could have gone many days. That same day the sun appeared, for the last time for four months. April 28th seemed to be quite a good day when we woke, and Wright, Keown and Gran started back for Cape Evans before 10am. We could then see the outline of Inaccessible Island, and the ice in the sound looked fairly firm so they determined to go by the way of the sea-ice under Castle Rock, instead of going along the peninsula to the Hudson Cliffs. Soon after they started it came up thick, and by 11.30 it was blowing a mild blizzard, with a low temperature. We felt considerable anxiety, especially when a full blizzard set in, with the temperature down to minus 31 degrees, and we could not see how the ice was standing it. Two days later it cleared, and that night a flare was lit at Cape Evans at a prearranged time, by which signal we knew that they had arrived safely. We heard afterwards that when it came up thick they decided to follow the land, which was the only thing that they could see. They soon found that the ice was not nearly so good as was supposed. There were open pools of water, and some of the ice was moving up and down with their weight as they crossed it. Gran put his foot in. Then Wright went ahead with the alpine rope, the ice being blue, the pulling easy, and the wind force four to five. As far as Turtleback Island the ice was newly frozen, but after that they knew they were on oldish ice. They were lost on Cape Evans in the blizzard for some time, but eventually found the hut safely. One of the lessons of this expedition is that too little care was taken in travelling on sea ice. Atkinson, Dimitri and I left for Cape Evans with the two dog-teams on May 1st. Directly we started it was evident that the surface was very bad. Even the ice near Hut Point, which had been frozen for a long time, was hard pulling for the dogs and when after less than a mile we got onto ice which had frozen quite lately, the sledges were running on snow, 
which in turn lay on salt sleet. It seemed a long time before we got abreast of Castle Rock, following close along the land, for the weather was very thick. When we started we could just see the outline of Inaccessible Island, but by now the horizon was lost in the dusk and haze. We decided to push on to Turtleback Island and go over the Glacier Tongue in order to get on to the older ice as soon as possible. The dogs began to get very done. Manuki Nugis, who had been harnessed in as leader, for Rabchik had deserted in the night, gave in completely, lay down and refused to be persuaded to go on. We had to cast him off and hope that he would follow. After a time Turtleback Island was visible in the gloom, but it was all we could do, pushing and pulling the sledges to help the dogs to get them so far. We were now on the older ice, our way was easier, and we reached Cape Evans without further incident. We found Rabchik on arrival, but no Manuki Nugis, who never reappeared. As we neared the Cape, Atkinson turned to me. "'Would you go for Campbell on the polar party next year?' he said. "'Campbell,' I answered. Just then it seemed to me unthinkable that we should leave live men to search for those who were dead. End of chapter 13, part 3